This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles now to Job chapter 11. And as you make your way to the 11th chapter of Job, well, I want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the bulk of this book is centered around a conversation that unfolded between a man named Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And if you're wondering about the reason for this conversation, well, the conversation was due to the fact that these guys had heard about the pain and the suffering that their friend Job was enduring, you know, after losing his health and his wealth, as well as his offspring, all within a very short amount of time. Unfortunately for Job, it didn't take long before his friends came to comfort him (laughs) because the comforters quickly became accusers as they began to judge Job from a judgment seat of their own ignorance. And listen, it's in similar fashion that I'm guessing we've all followed in the footsteps of Job's counselors from time to time. I have no doubt that you know there are times when we end up judging another person while seated on the same seat of ignorance, that, that, that judgment seat of ignorance that leads us to make judgments based on limited information. Maybe we heard something you know, that came our way through the gossip mill, or, or maybe we saw something, uh, somebody doing something that caused us to, to jump to a judgmental conclusion about them. And within no time at all, you know, we're judging others with unrighteous judgment. And if this sounds like something that you struggle with, Well, it's my prayer that this study will help us to uh, understand the the need for seeking the wisdom of the Lord before we step up and pass judgment on others. And so with this as the focus, let's consider the way that Job's friend Zophar judged him with unrighteous judgment here in our text tonight. If you would look with me there at Job chapter 11, I want to begin reading at verse 1. Here Job cries out, uh, or I'm sorry, that Zophar here, we we learned that it's Zophar, the Naamathite, who answers and says to Job, should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? Now, here in the beginning of this chapter, we're reintroduced to this guy named Zophar, who was a Naamathite, And I'll remind you that it was actually back in chapter 2. That's where we learned that Zophar was one of Job's three friends. Uh, And and apparently he had come all of the way from Nama. And and in order to comfort his friend during this time of despair, he he sat there and waited for his turn uh, to begin his comforting words. Okay, so you know, listen, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they, I'll remind you, is back in chapter 2, we learned that they all sat in silence for seven days. Incredible. They sat in silence for seven days. I don't know that I could sit in silence for seven minutes, but they sat in silence for seven days as they mourned alongside of their friend Job. And, and so, you know, then as they began to speak, you know, their comfort, the comfort that they were claiming to be bringing quickly turned into accusations And we've already seen how both Eliphaz and Bildad began insisting that the suffering of their friend Job, well, it seemed to suggest that the Lord was actually punishing him for living in unrepentant sin. And with that being the case, 
Well, we shouldn't be surprised to find Zophar now, the third friend. He's coming in hot as he steps up to rebuke his friend Job for rejecting the wise counsel of his other two friends. As a matter of fact, many commentators actually describe Zophar as the quick-tempered one in the group. The other guys were kind of implicitly, you know, suggesting that maybe, you know, it's possible that Job was living in sin. It certainly certainly seemed that way and whatnot. And and Zophar comes along and says, "Yeah, you're just you're just mocking God. You're just you're just a big sinner here." Some call Zophar staunch and arrogant. Other commentators call him hot-headed and ruthless. And while these descriptors might be true, I should also remind you that Zophar was actually the last one to speak. We've already seen the other two guys step up and, and give their two cents, and now Zophar is finally speaking, and, and he's the last one to speak. And, and it's possible that he spoke last because he was the youngest man in the group, and maybe if he's the youngest man in the group, maybe that, that would explain why he's still a bit hot-headed. It's also possible that he spoke last because he was a patient man. That, that is a possibility that he patiently sat and listened to the accusations of the other guys and then listened to the response of Job and he's weighing out all the evidence and maybe he's just patiently waiting to share his point of view. Maybe he was considering Job's reactions before speaking up. And if so, then it's possible that Zophar was simply a man who spoke with confidence, which came across as arrogance. It's possible, though, that he was speaking with confidence because he actually took the time to listen to everybody and, and hear their points of views before speaking up. And, and, you know, that is at times the position of people who, you know, speak with great confidence, uh, not because they're arrogant, but because they've listened, they've weighed everything out, they've considered their response before speaking up, and so they're, they're confident in what they're saying. Maybe that is the case. We don't know, but it's possible. Well, regardless of the reason for why Zophar spoke last, it won't take long before we realize that his counsel was skewed by the incorrect assumption that has led many to believe that a person who is suffering is probably being punished by God for their secret sins. You know, that still is a point of view that many hold in the church today. That if somebody is suffering, it's probably because God is punishing them. And listen, it is a, a, a possibility, but not always the case. It is possible that someone is suffering because God is punishing them. But it's also possible that somebody is suffering because we live in a fallen world. It's possible that someone is suffering because God is using this you know, to strengthen their faith. There, there are many different reasons for why a person might suffer. I'll remind you, it was back in Job chapter 2 where the Lord described Job as a blameless and upright man. And so we know just based on that, that that Job wasn't suffering because of secret, unrepentant sin. The Lord also described Job as one who fears God and shuns evil. And so while it's true that the Lord had allowed Satan to attack his servant Job, it's also true that this was not a punishment for some sort of unrepentant sin. And with that being the case, listen, the accusations of Zophar Uh, Well, they were wrong. The accusations that we will read here in our text tonight were wrong because he's coming in hot from from an incorrect position. He's judging Job from a seat of ignorance. Now, with all that being the case, let's back up and consider again the first accusation, which was couched in this question. Look with me there at verse 2. Here, Zophar asks, should not the multitude of words be answered? In other words, of all the things that you've said, someone needs to answer you. 
And he, and he asks, should a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? Here in these questions, we find Zophar, he's accusing Job of engaging in empty talk. In other words, he's equating Job's defense to just a bunch of babbling. Not only that, but Zophar was also insisting that Job ought to be rebuked for the way that he was mocking God. And and what he was really talking about was Job's defense of his own integrity. Remember, Job had defended himself, suggesting that he had you know, done the right things before the Lord, that, remember, he had offered the right sacrifices for his sins and also for the sins of his children. And, and in his defense, all, all Zophar could hear was the arrogance of a man who dared to mock God. And yet again, remember, Zophar was wrong. Job's defense of himself was actually in line with reality. Listen, we also find Zophar challenging the way that Job defended his defense of himself. Uh, And I want to consider how he puts it here in our text tonight. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 4, here Zophar declares, For you have said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know therefore that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. So far as saying, oh, that God would speak. But he's not, so I will. So, <laughs> you know, here's my, here's my assessment of the situation. Zophar explicitly accuses Job of living in unrepentant iniquity. And just to be clear, it'll help you to know that the word iniquity, it's found there in verse 6, it's translated from a Hebrew word which was used in reference to the guilt of the person who engages in sinful perversity and debased debased depravity. And simply put, Zophar was completely convinced that God was punishing Job because Job was guilty of engaging in sinful perversity and debased depravity. We should also notice how Zophar actually is mocking Job for the way that Job had defended himself Job, uh, as we've already seen, defended himself against the accusations of Eliphaz and Bildad. And so Zophar is now mocking him for his defense. And if you would look with me again, there at verse 4, here Zophar declares, For you have said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you. In other words, Job here is mocking, I'm sorry, Zophar is mocking Job for the way that Job was defending himself. And not only that, but Zophar was also certain that the Lord would actually confirm his accusation against Job had you know, the Lord decided to speak up about it. But, but God wasn't speaking up about it, not yet anyways. We'll, we'll get to that later on in the book. But here Zophar appeals to uh, you know, the suffering of Job as proof that he was being punished by God. Now what Zophar was failing to realize was that Job was not being punished for unrepentant iniquity. Therefore, he had no proof that Job was lying when he defended his own integrity. And as we consider Zophar's false accusation, well, it's important for us to realize that it's real easy for us to jump to the wrong conclusions about others, especially when we're already assuming the worst about them. If we're assuming the worst about another person, then any little accusation that we hear against them is, oh yeah, that's got to be true because, because they're that person. 
Christian, listen, if, if we're already assuming the worst about another believer, well, then we're not about to believe them when they present us with their perspective, when they present us with their defense for themselves. We're not even about to believe it. We're not even going to hear it. And it's sad to say that many relationships in the church have been ruined and for no other reason than the accuser was unwilling to accept the perspective of the one who's being falsely accused. You know, somebody could actually be presenting their perspective of why they did this or why they said that, and, and it's completely justifiable, and yet if we're already looking down our nose at them, if we're already judging them from a seat of ignorance, then we're not about to accept what they have to say in defense of themselves. It's for this reason the Lord Jesus instructed us to make sure that our judgments are based in truth and therefore righteous judgments. Here's how Jesus put it in John chapter 7. It's verse 24. There he declares, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Listen, rather than judging others according to the way things appear to be, the Lord Jesus here encourages us to judge with righteous judgment. In other words, our judgment of others should be based on truth and facts rather than hearsay and feelings. Now, there are those who would just say, thou shalt not judge, you know, and, and they're completely twisting the scriptures when, when they use that as some sort of standard for why Christians are not allowed to judge anybody or, or anyone. Or, and, and what they fail to do, you know, when, they te- when someone so, so, says to you, judge not lest you be judged, they're actually judging you. You know, that's what they fail to realize is that they're, they're actually presenting an argument that collapses in on itself because they're judging you as being a judgmental person when they tell you, judge not lest you be judged. Uh, listen, it's okay to judge providing our judgment is right, providing the judgment is righteous. Sadly for us, it's easy for us to make unrighteous judgments about others and especially when we allow our personal opinions to become the standard for, for truth. Listen, our opinions are often wrong. Now, I don't want to tell anybody out in the world because they'll get upset about this, but, but opinions are oftentimes wrong. Just because you have an opinion doesn't make it true. You know, and, and so many in the world today just want to have their truth. Well, that's my truth, you know. Well, be careful with all that because while your truth might be true, your truth might be false also. Opinions don't equal truth. Therefore, we, we need to make sure that our, our personal opinions actually line up with the true standard of truth. And, and, you know, of course, that's the word of God. But listen, there are those who are quick to defend the innocence of another person and for no other reason than because they're a friend or because they like them. And, and there might be a ton of evidence stacked against them. You know, just, just oodles of evidence that they did something wrong. Phone calls all day long with your son that you're you know, doing business in China or something like that. I mean, there could be all kinds of evidence. And yet, and yet you insist upon their innocence because you like that person. Well, that's not a righteous judgment. You know, deciding that somebody is innocent because you like them is not evident, and it's not, it's not based in truth. And at the same time, determining that somebody is guilty because you don't like them, well, that's not a good standard either. And yet there are times when we are quick to accuse another person, and, and for no other reason than because they've rubbed us the wrong way. Well, that's not a righteous judgment either. 
Please trust me when I tell you that the people we like aren't always innocent. And the people we don't care for, well, they aren't always guilty. That being the case, we we need to make sure that our judgments are based in righteousness rather than the heartfelt hypocrisy of those who judge others from feelings rather than from facts. I like the way that King Solomon put it in Proverbs chapter 17. It's verse 15 where he declares this, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Wow. Christian, listen, if we seek to justify those who are guilty because we like them, that's an abomination to the Lord. And at the same time, if we condemn the innocent with false accusations simply because we don't like them, well, that also is an abomination to the Lord. Therefore, you know, before we step up like Zophar and falsely accuse the innocent, we might take, take a little time to make sure that our judgment is truly based in righteousness. And with this as the goal, well, we do well to use the truth of God's word as the basis for every judgment we make. And with this as the goal, I want to consider the way that Zophar put it here in Job chapter 11. If you would, let's pick up our study at verse 7 there. Here Zophar asks this, he says, Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Now, here in these verses, we find Zophar, he's reminding Job about the infinite wisdom of God. And without debate, Zophar was completely correct when he refers to the unlimited boundaries of our almighty God. You know, this gets into the, a discussion of the omnis of God. You know, God is omnipresent, meaning that he's everywhere, he's infinite. God is, you know, omni, uh, omnipotent, I should say, because he's all-powerful. You know, he's omniscient, meaning that he's all-knowing. He's omnibenevolent, meaning that he's completely, uh, infinitely uh, loving. He's our almighty God, and, and the character of God knows no bounds. The wisdom and the knowledge of God knows no bounds. He is omniscient, meaning, you know, omniscience or all-knowledge. That being the case, we should be humble enough to realize that God's ways, well, they're probably higher than our ways. You know, we have these little bitty peanut finite brains that, you know, struggle to figure things out that are just simple to God. God's ways are definitely higher than our ways. And and, and his knowledge is higher than the heavens. It's deeper than the bottomless pit of Sheol. I like the way that the Lord put it in Isaiah chapter 55. It's verses 8 and 9 where he declares, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. In other words, the finite mind of man left to itself will never be able to fully comprehend the infinite wisdom of God. I like the way that Paul put it in Romans chapter 11. It's verse 33 where he declares, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. In other words, the decisions and the judgments of God, 
Well, they're based on his infinite wisdom. They're not bound by our finite knowledge. No, they are boundless. And they come from his infinite wisdom. And what this means is that, listen, there are times when he allows believers to suffer from some sort of thorn in the flesh because this is just part of his greater plan. There are times when he allows us to suffer some sort of thorn in the flesh because it's part of his greater plan, which we don't fully understand. And yet here we are in the middle of his greater plan, and we don't like the way things are going, so it's like, well, I don't like what... According to my, you know, 54 years of knowledge, I know something, right? Wrong. I don't know anything. I don't know why God is allowing us to suffer in this way or that. I don't know why God is allowing him, uh, you know, the, the, the wicked to, to do these things and, and while, uh, you know, allowing his people to suffer. And I, I don't know. And if I start making judgments with my finite mind about why these things are happening and I, and I, and I start dancing on the edge of, of accusing God of doing something wrong, it's foolishness. God's ways are higher than our ways. What do I know? What do you know? And this was the point that Zophar was making to Job. Hey, before you defend yourself, you might want to take a moment to think about this, that you, know, you might not know why God is punishing you for your sins. Listen, if Zophar truly believed this, though, then he wouldn't have rushed to judge Job. I mean, the words of Zophar here are true. And yet, the problem is, is that he's not applying them to himself. You know, he's the kind of Christian that shows up to a Bible study like this and starts thinking, yeah, I'm so glad so-and-so is here to hear these words. This is totally for them. Well, it might be for you. It might be for you. If Zophar truly believed the words that he was saying and applied them to himself, then he wouldn't have been judging Job from the judgment seat of ignorance. If Zophar truly believed that it's impossible for our finite minds to search out the deep things of God, then he would have possibly realized that his assessment of Job's suffering may have been wrong. Maybe he would have realized that it's possible that Job is suffering for some other reason. And while he was quick to, you know, he was correct when he insisted here that the wisdom of God is higher than the heaven and deeper than Sheol, he was failing to apply this truth to his own point of view. He, he was failing to come to this place of, of realizing that maybe he was wrong about Job. In similar fashion, listen, it's easy for us to think that our judgments are in line with the judgments of God. As if, like, you know, God's always in line with the way I think. Like God's always on board with my point of view. And it's easy for us to, to, to step out from there and engage in the fallacy of special pleading as we assume that God agrees with our opinion rather than the, the opinion of those that we disagree with. I mean, why else would we argue with them? If we thought for one second that maybe our opinion isn't as in line with God's will as we thought it was, well, then we might be a little bit more humble when we disagree with people. 
And yet how many of us are quick to just stand, you know, on sanctimony and think that God's on our side, you know, and, and therefore I can have confidence as, you know, as I put forth this point of view. Listen, we'd all do well to realize that those who want to judge with righteous judgments, we must first make sure that we're basing our judgments on the truth of God's word. Because listen, the Bible provides us with the wisdom of God by which we can make righteous judgments. I like the way that Paul puts it in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's verses 16 and 17 where he declares, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. Christian, listen, those who want to make sure that their judgments are righteous, meaning that if you want to make sure that your judgments are right, well, you should first make sure to, uh, to spend some time seeking the scriptures because that's where we find instructions in righteousness. How do we know if our judgments are right? Well, they're in line with the instructions in righteousness that we find in the Bible. And as we take the time to consider the truth of God's word, the Lord will help us to judge with righteous judgment. Now, in order to further make my case, let's continue to consider the point that Zophar here is making in Job chapter 11. If you would look with me there, Job chapter 11, we'll pick up at verse 10. Here Zophar asks, If he passes by in prisons and gathers to judgment then who can hinder him? For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Wow. Here we find Zophar. He's assuring Job that the judgments of the Lord, they're always just. And, And what this means is that if God places a person into a prison, he had a just reason for the judgment. If the king of kings calls the court to order, who has the authority above the Lord to say no? Zophar also insisted here that the Lord knows those who are deceitful. That's right. You might be able to fool some of the people some of the time, but you can fool the Lord none of the time. He knows what's in our hearts. He knows when we're being deceitful. God knows the, the deceitful people who pretend to have emotional support animals. He knows when they're lying about it. I went to a, a, a restaurant recently. I saw someone wheel in a, a, a puppy in a baby carriage. And on the front it said, support animal. And I said, nuh-uh. That is not a support animal. It's not. And I'm all for real, legitimate support animals, you know. But the, the waitress at the, uh, the restaurant there told me that they're not allowed to ask. According to Texas law, they can't ask if they have a license or not. And then she proceeded to tell me that someone brought in a support iguana. And there was nothing they could do about it. Because you've got to let deceivers be deceptive. 
You got to let the liars who, who say they have a support animal and it's not. You got to let them pretend. But God knows. God knows they're deceivers and they will be punished. God knows every wicked person who scams the handicap system so that they can have a handicapped parking spot when they're really not handicapped. Oh, these people drive me crazy. You see them pull up, park in the spot, you know, put the, the sign on the rear view mirror in the, in the car, and then they get out and they just kind of George Jefferson their way right into the restaurant. God knows they're deceivers. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll get off this. God knows those who are engaging in the wicked ways of this world, even when they're doing it in the privacy of their own home. And you better believe that our God knows what's in the hearts of men and women and those who think they're somewhere in between. God knows. So don't think that you're fooling God anytime because he knows. And listen, when this applies to people in the church, when this applies to those who claim to be Christian, well, you better believe that our God is like a loving father who's ready to chastise his children when they're choosing to live in sin. And with that being the case, we'd all do well to repent of every deception. We'd do well to repent of every wicked way that's displeasing to him. Because while you might be fooling everyone else at church, Listen, God sees what, what goes on in, in your house. God sees what goes on in, in your life. And, and he knows how to put you in prison, and he knows how to shut you down, and he knows how to punish you so that you might come to a place of repentance. Listen, if you think you can outsmart God, then I encourage you to remember, memorize verse 12 there. Look, look with me at verse 12 again. For an empty-headed man will be wise when wild donkey's colt is born a man. I like the way that the scholars who created the New American Standard Bible render this verse. They put it like this. An idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. And I know science might finally accomplish this sometime soon, but, but probably not for a while. The scholars who created the English Standard Bible render the Hebrew in this way. A stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. You, you catching the point here? And knowing that our God has made foolish the wisdom of this world, well, we'd all do well to realize that we need God's help if we're going to walk in wisdom. We need God's help if we're going to walk in wisdom. With this as the goal, I want to consider the counsel that Zophar presents to Job here in Job chapter 11. Uh, if you would, let's begin reading there at verse 13. Here Zophar declares this. He says, if you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life would be brighter than noonday. 
though you were dark, you would be like the morning. And you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around you and take your rest and safety. You would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail and they shall not escape. And their hope, loss of life. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Zophar, he's presenting some excellent advice for a backslidden believer who's still living in habitual sin. And while it's true that this counsel didn't really apply to Job's situation, because remember, Job truly was a man who shunned evil and feared the Lord. And yet for the Christian who's still struggling as they live in sin, well, we would do well to heed this counsel. Listen, if this sounds like your situation, if you're a backslidden believer, I encourage you, let's take a closer look there at verse 13, because here Zophar declares this. He says, if you would prepare your heart and stretch out your hands toward him. Christian, listen, the only way for us to conquer our carnal cravings, the only way for us to gain the victory over those habitual sins is by first making sure that our heart belongs to the Lord. We must prepare our hearts for the Lord, for him to rule and reign within our hearts. And listen, if Jesus isn't the king of your heart, well, it's no wonder why you have no power over your sinful desires. And so prepare your heart. Allow the Lord Jesus to be the king of your heart and, and stretch out your hands to him as you surrender your heart to him. You know, I think about, you know, the, the idea of raising your hands while you worship. And for many years, I struggled to understand, what is that about? Like, what is this raising up your hands business? And then I thought back to my criminal years. And I thought, oh, yeah. That's the way you let the officer know not to shoot you. Hands up. Because that's the clear sign of surrender. And so Zophar says, hey, put your hands up. Prepare your heart and put your hands up. Surrender yourself to the kingship of Jesus Christ. At the same time, we should also notice what Zophar said in verse 14. It's there where he declares this. He says, if iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents. Now, let's just consider what he's saying here. As we lift up our hands in surrender to our Savior Jesus, we should simultaneously drop the sinful things that we're holding on to. When you lift your hands in surrender... Just, just drop whatever you're holding on to because it's probably the wrong thing. And, and with that, we should ask this. How will God give us the good and perfect gifts that he's promised to provide if we're still holding on to the sinful things of this world? You know, if, if you're holding on to two handfuls of, of dirt, just to keep it clean, and God is trying to give you gold, you're going to have to let go of the dirt to take hold of the gold, right? 
And, and yet, there's so many in the church today who are just holding on to that dirt, holding on to that rubbish. Can't let this go because I worked so hard for it. And Zophar saying, just, just let it go, push it away from you as you surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what? He'll give you something better to hold on to. And as we return our attention to the Lord, he will restore us so that we can once again walk in the light of his truth. And let's consider how Zophar puts it, beginning at verse 15 there again. He declares, then surely you could lift up your face without spot. Yes, you could be steadfast and not fear because you would forget your misery and remember it as waters that have passed away and your life would be brighter than noonday. Though you were dark, you would be like the morning. Now here in these verses, we learn that the backslidden believer who's living in fear of punishment, well, they're enabled to stand strong and steadfast in, 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 in our Savior after returning to the Lord. Once we surrender and and let go of our our sinful cravings and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, he enables us to stand steadfast. And not only that, but the darkness of depravity, which once surrounded us, is then replaced by the light of the Lord. Therefore, listen, if you're a believer who is backslidden and you've been stumbling around in the spiritual darkness, then it's time to repent. And as you repent and return to the Lord, all of a sudden, you know, he enables you to spiritually see again as you walk in his light. Zophar also mentions the security that we can have as we walk in the light of the Lord. Notice again in verse 18, here again he declares, you would be secure because there is hope. Yes, you would dig around and take your rest in safety. Christian, listen, those who want to feel secure in the hope of salvation must abide in the light of the Lord. That's right, it's the believer who is abiding in the vine of Jesus Christ who then can also rest in the assurance of their salvation. If you're not abiding in the vine, you you don't have any assurance. You're still living in the fear of punishment, knowing that either God's about to punish you as a loving father or he's about to punish you as a righteous judge. But the believer who is abiding in the vine and walking in the light of the Lord, they have assurance all day long. And in that assurance, we can rest knowing that our Savior is going to save us. At the same time, those who continue to walk in wickedness will fail to experience the security of salvation. And I want to consider how Zophar puts it here in Job chapter 11. Look with me again at verse 19. Here he declares, you would also lie down and no one would make you afraid. Yes, many would court your favor, but the eyes of the wicked will fail and they shall not escape and their hope, loss of life. Here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Zophar presenting us with a contrast between those who are resting in the hope of salvation and those whose only hope is that their life might finally end. How sad is that? How sad is it if your only hope is to die? And knowing that the judgment of God is eternal, listen, the hope of annihilation will never, ever be realized. And it's so tragic when I hear of unbelievers committing suicide knowing that what they thought would be escape is really nothing more than jumping out of the fire out of, the fire, out of the fire pan into the fire. It's tragic 
to consider it. That suicide for the unbeliever is not escape, but only a further realization of God's everlasting punishment. With that being the case, I would encourage every person to make their call and their election in the Lord more sure. You see, there are those who say, Lord, Lord, and yet they've never truly placed their faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, listen, if, if you're currently living in habitual sin, then I, I encourage you to follow the instructions as Zophar presents here in these verses. Prepare your heart for the Lord through repentance. And then lift up your hands in surrender to our Savior by faith in Jesus Christ. And then we can have the hope and the security of salvation. Without debate, Zophar presented excellent advice for backslidden believers. At the same time, we must not lose sight of the fact that his, his advice was actually misapplied in the situation he found himself in. And the reason I say this is because his judgment of Job was completely incorrect. Good advice for the wrong person. And, and therefore, his counsel was incorrect. Not that the counsel was incorrect in and of itself. It was incorrect because he failed you know, to, uh, to, to present this to an actual backslider. Job was not a backslider. Job was... A blameless man, he was, uh, you know, uh, a servant of the Lord. He had kept up with his sacrifices. He was keeping God first in his life. And so much like his friends Eliphaz and Bildad, Zophar was also wrong to apply this counsel to Job's situation. So it's good counsel for a backslidden believer. But for Job... The council was incorrect because you know, Zophar was failing to seek the infinite wisdom of God before he stepped up to judge Job from the judgment seat of his own ignorance. Christian, listen. Before we rush to pass judgment on others, before we think, I've got the right counsel for this person, we've got to spend some time seeking the wisdom of the one who knows what's in the heart of every single person. Listen, I don't know what's in your heart. And, you know, I honestly do my best to believe the best about people. But God knows what's in your heart. And if the Lord wants me to go and rebuke someone, then I better take some time to seek the infinite wisdom of the one who knows what's in the heart of the person that he's sending me to rebuke. I'm not going to be able to figure it out. You guys know I'm not the smartest bulb in the box. I don't even know what that means. But I'm smart enough to know this, that I can't lean on my own understanding. Because I don't understand a lot. I don't even understand why you guys are here tonight. Rather than leaning on our own understanding, we would do well to lean on the Lord. And then, if he's leading us to rebuke another believer... Well, then we can also rejoice in knowing that he's going to give us the wisdom we need to judge with righteous judgment. And the reason why is because he is the righteous judge. 
of heaven and earth. I like the way that Jesus explained it in John chapter 5. It's there where he declares this. He says, I can, do, I, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus, speaking from his humanity, was saying, look, I'm not here to do my own will. He wasn't here to accomplish his human will. He was here to accomplish the divine will of God the Father. And so the Logos surrendered himself to the will of the Father through the incarnation and in the humanity of Jesus. Jesus submit himself to the will of God the Father. And with that being the case, all of his judgments were righteous all the time. The judgments of Jesus were righteous while he was here on earth because they were in line with the will of God the Father. And in light of his example, I encourage you, Christian, let's make sure that our judgments are also righteous judgments. And we do this by seeking the divine wisdom that comes from the righteous judge of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ, who enables us to judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray.